Welcome to Helpful Social Work. Social work has the power to change people's lives for the better. This podcast aims to help you learn, think and act with integrity so that people who need social work get help that will transform their lives. I'm Jerry, And I'm Jo. And uh, this is our next podcast of Series 5, which is about what makes a good social worker. Um, it's being recorded on the 17th of September to go out in October. Now, every month we're posting a podcast that looks at what makes a great social worker. We started in April with the overall ingredients and are now looking at each of the domains of the professional capabilities framework in England. We are looking at the practice domains and last month was knowledge and today's podcast is about critical reflection and analysis and then the next one is going to be about skills and intervention. After that, we've still got to look at professionalism, context and organisations and professional leaderships. Thank you for continuing to listen to Helpful Social Work. We are coming up to 70,000 downloads. And just to recap on our most listened to episodes, it's actually the Black Lives Matter um, episode from this series with Farina Renan is our most listened to podcast. Um, last series, series four, we did some podcasts on children and ad adolescents, which are very well listened to, and one on anti-racism. Uh, series three, the most popular podcasts were the ones on assessment. And back in series one, our very first podcast on integrity is still one of our most listened to podcasts. So thank you for listening. Do tell us what you think. And you can do this by visiting our website, www.helpfulsocialwork.com, or by commenting on iTunes or on our Facebook page, Helpful Social Work Podcast. Yes, we do want to hear from you. And I think um, 70,000 downloads is amazing. So thank you, everybody. So this episode is about critical reflection and analysis. And, and we have talked about this before, actually, um, in series one, 4A and 4B on critical reflection and series three, 4B on decision making. So we're going to try not to repeat ourselves. Uh, there is a lot to say about this topic, so I think we should be safe. And we're going to start with what the professional capabilities framework has to say about this domain. And there are different levels to the framework. Um, so we tend to hone in on the experienced social worker. So this is practitioners who are experienced in their work. So then there's something to aim for or something to support any social worker. And it captures the essence of each domain. So I'm just going to read out the one around critical, critical reflection and analysis. And this is the um, area that requires us to apply critical reflection and analysis to inform and provide a rationale for professional decision making. Uh, it says that social workers critically reflect on their practice. They use analysis, apply professional judgment and reason discernment. We identify, evaluate and integrate multiple sources of knowledge and evidence. We continuously evaluate our impact and benefit to service users. We use supervision and other support to reflect on our work and sustain our practice and well-being. We apply our critical reflective skills to the context and the conditions under which we practice. Our reflection enables us to challenge ourselves and others and maintain our professional curiosity, creativity and self-awareness. Um, the things that really jump out for me there uh, particularly is where we continuously evaluate our impact and benefit to service users. So it's not just about making that first judgment and holding tight to it. It's about revisiting our judgments again and again and maintaining our professional curiosity, even when we think we know what's going on. 
And a model that's around that's very helpful for that um, is a model called um, Safe Uncertainty. It was um, developed in 1993 by Barry Mason, and he he's a, um, a therapeutic practitioner, and he offered up a simple and yet quite profound explanation of what safe uncertainty means when you're working with families. He noted that when therapists go into sessions with family, they frequently did so with the aim of proving or disproving their hypothesis rather than owning a position of uncertainty, which allows you to then explore the ideas and the meanings that they bring to a session. And I think that this is something that social workers often have as well. We often go into families with agendas and a fixed driver of what we need to solve. So we've already been told in the referral what the problem is and we're often going out there to help. And that can lead us to have a narrow um, idea of what's happening. Confirmation bias approach really, which means that we go into situations thinking we already need what we need we already know what we need to know about a family rather than remaining open minded until after we've heard from them. So safer uncertainty has four areas in it. Unsafe certainty is where you absolutely know what the problem is, but you're clear about what's causing it and what will solve it. And this really does allow you to fall into confirmation bias. Safe certainty is when you're sure that the problem is solvable and the risk can be eradicated. This practice makes us risk averse. We tend to generalize our responses and we follow procedures because we have an idea that one size fits all, so we don't individualize enough. Safe uncertainty. This is um, authoritative doubt. This is where Mason says we should sit. And it's not fixed and it's always in a state of flow and exploration. There's multiple explanations for the problem and the solution. And you learn to be comfortable sitting with a mindset that says this is the thing that is least likely to be wrong rather than this is right. And that's quite an important change in your mindset. And then we have unsafe uncertainty, which is when people feel hopeless, There's the problem is overwhelming, there's no solution, and this makes us ineffective um, and we're unable to manage the risk or to make good impact. So this model is quite helpful for us when we're walking into a new case or a new situation, can we sit with safe uncertainty? And Munro's also talked about this as well. She she writes about the need for holding ourselves in a state of uncertainty and then being able to change our mind should the evidence of our of our intervention show that we we didn't get it right. So I, I think it's a it's a great model to um hold. It's a really helpful idea, isn't it? And fits with um, some of the things that we've talked about around how you would explore complexity um, and the need for reflection in action and reflection on action. And the the other thing that occurs to me is um, the, when you're time pressured, um, so in, in adult services, for example, you may often only have one visit with somebody. Mm -hmm. the, the temptation is to adopt a more certain stance because mm -hmm. it seems like it will be quicker but actually it's even more important when your time is constrained to be very open to what might be happening and to give as much room as you can in that short space of time to to potential explanations and, and potential experiences um, so working hard at safe uncertainty when you're constrained might seem counterintuitive but it's going to be really important 
Well, it's going to make the intervention more effective, isn't it? That's the bottom line, is if you're certain, then you give, a, you give that simple answer um, and then after a while you realise actually it hasn't made the impact that you thought it would and that's often because you haven't had enough time to uncover some of the, some of the real um, issues that are driving, driving the problem, feeding the problem really. So there's some statements in the domain around critical reflection and analysis, which I think really help with um, with us taking that kind of stance. And the first one, actually, that I want to highlight is the last one on the list, which is about applying and encouraging in others the use of imagination, creativity and curiosity in practice, exploring options to solve dilemmas and problems involving people who use services in reflections and creativity wherever possible. And that's really valuable because... Um, our openness to uncertainty allows other people's knowledge and expertise to come in um, and you're always working with people who can volunteer and provide and give expert insight themselves uh, so encouraging in others that reflection and curiosity is a really wonderful way of, of enhancing our own professional judgment um, then we also need to routinely and effectively apply critical reflection and analysis. Uh, so be in the habit of reflecting and stopping to reflect. Draw on a wide range of evidence sources to inform this. Ensure that our hypotheses and options are reviewed. And that goes back to what Joe was saying about not um, getting to a position of certainty and then sticking with it. Demonstrating confidence and skills to provide professional opinion to social workers and other professionals. And as we get more um, practiced in critical reflection and analysis, we get more able to share that with others. Um, and that's valuable for our own learning, because we learn more as we talk through things, um, and also for other people around us. So it really highlights that um, in, in this domain, I think that one of the things to pick up on is that it highlights the importance of professional judgment, opinion, decision-making and sharing that with others because there's a purpose to our critical reflection and analysis. It's not just because we're curious people and it's interesting to think about other people's lives, but because we want to reach some kind of conclusion um, and that we do that in partnership with other people. Um, so we're not analysing other people. We're analysing and reflecting on situations and experience and social matters with people. Yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it, and to, to kind of keep that mindset. And I think for me, um, when I think about management and team managers and those types of roles, one of the things that you can do is you can actually not give people answers all the time, which is often, once again, you talked about being time pressured earlier and how easy, how easy it is when you're a manager just to give a straight answer to somebody. But it's much more interesting to ask them, what it is um, that they're hoping to get out of the conversation they're having with you or what else the issue could be, um, you know, and to ask more about their thinking than um, actually give them the answer. And I, this for me, um, I had this encounter with my son actually the other day when we were having quite a difficult conversation and I found myself getting quite cross really. And he just stopped and he said, mum, before we go any further, can I just ask you, what are you hoping to get out of this conversation? Because I can see it's going wrong and I'm just wondering what it is that you wanted. And I thought that was a cracking question, I've got to say, because yeah. it did make me pause. And then I started thinking, yeah, what is it that I'm trying to get mm. from having this conversation? And I think that having some 
good pausing questions that, like I said, are about people's kind of drivers or about what they're thinking or why they're thinking rather than kind of just giving them a straight answer. Yeah, you know? I think that's right. And that goes back to those kind of open questions, the kind of curious questions that we need to use, yeah. um, purposeful kind of questions where we're really thinking about why we're doing things and why things are happening and trying to depersonalize some of that so that it's you more about what's happening and why are things happening than um, why are you doing that, which can be a bit accusatory. So, mm, mm. yeah, I think I think questioning is 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 the best way of getting people to reflect, isn't it? Yeah. And of course, we talk about team managers and that that kind of moves us into um, the area of supervision, which is where a lot of our um, critical reflection is done. Um, and there's a really helpful model, uh, Ruches, Gillian Ruches, four level of reflection. And it's quite a helpful model to help us understand what actually happens in reflective supervision. And it's particularly around how available we are for critical thinking. And um, the model proposes four levels of reflection. And the first one's technical reflection, which is quite pragmatic. And it compares performance with knowledge, um, what should be done as set out in standards and policies and timescales and procedures. So you're still reflecting. You know, you'd, you'd be using that and saying, OK, well, what does the policy tell us? How can we move on with this? How can we do this? Um, and technical reflection can also um, talk about type of engagement so you can engage on a fairly um, top level of reflection so if you think of yourself as an onion technical reflection is that kind of outside shiny bit I'm here um, to do this form with you kind yeah, of thing. yeah yeah that's right and then practical reflection this is when we start to get a little bit deeper we take off a layer and we start to think about well this is how we're making sense of the situation so this is why I'm thinking this this is why I'm saying it this is the knowledge I'm drawing on um, and 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 this is this is kind of where I am and a lot of us stop in supervision at practical reflection so technical reflection and practical reflection because each level that you go down actually does take more energy and time and a bit more exposure so critical reflection is when you actually think about much more than just the individual transaction you start to move out and think about the social and public context and the power relationship um, did it matter that I was a woman did it matter that I was white did it matter that I was older did it matter that I held this position um, does it matter that this person was living in this neighborhood did it matter that this person had this backstory and you start to think much more about all of the systems that are working around the person and once again that takes more effort and it's where you start to think what did I bring into this situation so me being here what did that change and what did it impact upon and did it make things better or worse so you're really starting to challenge yourself and then the last level is the process reflection and this is a really very deepest layer and this is where you start to process your emotions and your unconscious responses that um, are generated when you engage with people. The really key and critical thing here in process reflection is that you have to think about worker availability, relationship and their wellness before you move into it. 
Um, both Roosh and Ferguson, Harry Ferguson, have done some really great work around this, and they've observed that social workers will protect themselves about being overwhelmed by trauma and emotion by managing the amount of reflection they can participate in. So if you're feeling unsafe or stressed or the relationship that you have with the supervisor or in the group, whatever it is, doesn't make you feel safe and contained, you're likely to stick to technical and practical reflection. You might even go to critical reflection, but you're unlikely to go into process reflection. Yeah, you do need that kind of safe space don't you, and permission and trust to do it. Um, and that goes for families and adults and children that we work with as well. Absolutely. And I remember, Jerry, as a young social worker, my mentor said to me, don't pull apart anything you can't put back together. And that's really stuck with me because what she was saying to me is make sure you have the time, the skills and the trust to properly explore and contain the issues that are going to arise if you're going to do process reflection. And the other thing is you need to make sure that the practitioner or the family or the person you're working with understands that that's what they're, that's what they're signing up for and that they're ready for that. So I think it's a really useful way to think about reflection. And of course, the deeper you go with trying to pull apart your behaviours and your impacts and your place um, in social work um, systemically, the, the better your practice becomes, the more thoughtful your practice becomes. So it's really worthwhile doing. Just thinking about the power issues here as well, that um, if you're asking someone or encouraging someone to undertake that kind of reflection, um, it needs to be um, you need to be really careful of that power because I mean, it's just, it's just making me think about some of the yeah. work that's coming out at the moment from um, people who engage in Black Lives Matter um, writing and speaking saying essentially they're being asked or in some cases um, you know, kind of pushed into um, doing process reflection really about what's happening to them about their experience yeah. sharing those experiences and, and it's traumatic and yeah. um, we have to be really careful don't we if we're encouraging people to think deeply for whatever reason it's, it's got to be ethical um, yes and we've got to be looking out for those unintended consequences all the time because sometimes we can touch people inadvertently and so you know it, you we need to be checking in when you're doing reflective work you need to be checking in all the time but there's no doubt that if reflective work is done well it really does help you think critically and clearly and if we go right back up to the top where it talked about you know what skills we have to have and you, and you think about the fact that we have to have reason discernment you know, so in other words, we have to be able to understand why we're thinking what we're thinking and whether it matters or needs to apply to this certain situation. And that is no, that's no small job. This is big thinking that we're being asked to do. So reflection helps. Yeah, the other thing I wanted to talk about in terms of how reflection helps is, is its relevance to all aspects of social work. So the professional capabilities framework covers um, the whole of your career from before you become a student through to if you did go into a strategic role. Um, and so it's important to recollect that it's not just for it's not just critical reflection on practice, direct practice that we need. Um, and one of the things that I did to prepare for this was just have a quick look at the British Journal of Social Work, um, 
and articles that involve critical reflection studies from the last couple of months um, and they talk about the importance of reflection in challenging normative views, reviewing change in an organisation, managing yourself, um, supporting students to learn, understanding differences in policy outcomes, um, looking at how theories and research are embedded, um, carrying out research, making sense of social work's history, managing stress and compassion fatigue, um, supporting people with lived experience to develop their own problem-solving skills. So just a really wide range, mm. essentially every role, every place in social work, you need to be doing critical reflection and analysis. And there was also something that really struck me from one of the articles on poverty-aware practice, which um, talked about this area of social work requiring a critical and sustained commitment to move beyond individual self-reflection towards critical analysis of the political, economic and social policy contexts in which we work. And that really struck me as um, we often talk about critical reflection analysis as something that we engage with on an individual basis or maybe in groups, but really thinking about our own practice rather than thinking about the system mm. and the context and analysing and critiquing that yeah, and I was reading a really fantastic uh, paper just uh, earlier today, and it was a critique of intersectionality, um, which is something we've spoken about quite a lot, Crenshaw's theory and other podcasts as a helpful frame for thinking about equality and diversity. And um, this critique was basically saying that, you know, like any framework, it's been adapted and stretched to be used for all sorts of, positive, of um, other purposes and it can have unintended consequences. Um, and their argument was when we use intersectionality to understand an individual's life and journey, it does provide us with rich insight into that person's lived experience, but it can also reposition the systemic issues into individual ones and therefore make the individual responsible for the change, which lets the system off. Um, and they were saying that patriarchy, racism and class oppression are political systems that need to be challenged and changed as social entities. And um, to use the personal is to move this, the issue to the subjective and then some people can, or some political, some politics, some some structures can then say, well, actually, the solution resides within the individual. So if the individual understands their own journey and their own issues, they can then do something about it. I think that's really valuable because in social work we often do take theories and research um, from a place, different places, and bring them together and bring them into social work. Unless we really think about what that does um, and how applicable it is and the consequences of how we apply it um, it's really open to um, yeah to to being unethical we just have to be really thoughtful about that yeah we can and we and we can miss the unintended consequences and I think that's true across the whole of social work practice um, we just need to be, you know, much as social work is about improving the societal conditions to enable thriving and compassionate living by all. So that means as social workers, we need to think critically, both individually and collectively. Yeah, and constantly be moving between the kind of micro and the macro, because yeah. if we're working with an individual, we have to think about what does that mean for the context? What's the mm -hmm. context mean for that individual? And when we're looking at the context, we then have to think, well, what does that mean coming back to people's lives? Um, and can we challenge those contexts so that every it's it's that kind of um it's like what um 
they talk about in contextual safeguarding, isn't it? We can deal with every individual that enters that dark place in the park and who is raped, or we can actually deal with the dark place in the park um, to prevent individuals having that experience. And so sometimes we need to turn what we're doing around a bit, and critical thinking certainly helps with that. The other thing I wanted to talk about was uh, the problem of information overload and how well we trust um, information. Mm. So actually, this is a, the term information overload is really old. Um, I found on Wikipedia that um, it's probably first used in 1964 um, <laughs> in a book by Bertram Grace, The Managing of Organisations, and I'm sure it was used back in ancient times as well. So in the modern era, it's, it's certainly been something that's been discussed for a long time. And it's how we do that thing of reasoned discernment when we have so much information coming at it and particularly how we discern or understand the robustness of something, the trustworthiness of something. And mm. I, I think that there's a really strong parallel between the information issue and the research around stress generally. So lots of demand, lots of complexity and lack of control causes stress. And that happens when we have too much information. Um, or it's too complex, or we don't have control over it. Um, and the, the things that reduce stress, which is relationships and support and role clarity, I think also help us with the information issue. So the kind of questions that relate to information would be, um, for my role, for what I'm, my purpose, do I need this information? Um, what's my relationship with the information? Can I trust it? And then do I need support to help me with this information to understand it? Um, and I think really kind of thinking through our purpose and um, our relationship to information and our understanding of it will help us. And I think this is really exacerbated by social media as well, um, but there is good guidance, um, mm. both in social media policy, so Baswas, for example, but also in work that's been done around digital technology using social media, um, that there's a problem of social media kind of causing overload and untrustworthiness, but there's also a real benefit of being able to access information. So for us as social workers, we have this ethical responsibility to think about the information that we use and be aware of, um, of whether, you know, how we would check it, how mm. we would understand it and trust it and um, what purpose we might use it for, but also being really responsible for what we post. Yeah. Um, because a lot of the stuff that social workers um, will use will come from other social workers. So thinking about, our, again, we, went, we talked at the beginning didn't we, about encouraging other people to be critically reflective. So making sure that when we share things, we're critically reflective in a way that supports others. Yeah, I, I think that's right. This um, idea of information that comes up, and it's not just from social media, actually, Jerry. You know, the way that we do our assessment work can sometimes bring us um, a real information overload. We can get a real, um, I used to say it's like having um, a, pot of spaghetti dumped out with all different coloured spaghettis and you've got to kind of try and sift and sort it. But um, Jane Warnicott has developed a simple tool that helps us sort and sift information and it's called the discrepancy matrix. And what it does is it allows us to examine each piece of information we've gathered and then ask the following questions. And the first one is, does this information put me on firm ground? And that's what you're talking about. Am I sure of its accuracy? Does it tell me enough? or is it ambiguous? Um, an example would be mother has mental health issues. Okay. Well, it doesn't tell us anything about the impact of the illness on her or others, its severity, its frequency. And we might be tempted as a result of those words to think we know something about the mother, 
but it's actually highly unlikely we do. What we know is what we think and understand about mental health and its impact on people, and that's not enough. So the framework also says, what are you assuming? In other words, you're assuming that the mental health issue is actually impacting on her ability to parent or is part of the reason for the referral. And it's likely, but it's by no means certain. We're not on firm ground. Um, so lastly, the framework asks us to identify what's missing. What is it that we don't know about that we should? For instance, um, if it's mentioned that there's other children or that one child has a different father, but there's no more information, we need to put this in that missing information box. And of course, we can think about one piece of information in all three boxes. We can know that mother has a mental health issue, but it's ambiguous, that piece of information. There's no more information, so it's missing. What's missing is the impact, so we need to find out the impact. And additionally, we may have assumed that poor mental health was part of the issue being raised, so that was an assumption we made. So what it helps you do is take each piece of information and really challenge yourself on it and sort and sift it. And the aim of the tool is to help the worker plan what they need to inquire about and understand more fully to get the information they're going to rely on for the decision making onto firmer ground. So you're making your decision on the most robust information you possibly can. I think it's a great tool. I, I use it all the time. I find it incredibly helpful. Yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? Because it does make you realise that many of the things that you kind of think are fairly concrete, that are firm mm. ground, actually aren't, mm. um, that they are ambiguous or they are um, assumptions or there yeah, is some important stuff missing. Yeah. 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 So very, very helpful. Thank you, Jane Wanacott. So um, we were going to finish up with some reflective questions. Oh, these are, these are huge questions, but they go back okay. to those really wonderful phrases in the professional capabilities framework. So the first is, how do I apply reasoned discernment? Yes, what does that indeed. mean to me? Um, what does that look like in my life? And the second one is, how do I maintain this professional curiosity, creativity and self-awareness? And that's a wonderful stance as well, isn't it? These are these are, are real skills. I think that's that's the thing is this this is highly skilled work and being able to maintain that curiosity and hold uncertainty while you're managing risk is 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 um something that needs a lot of reflection and and a lot of um practice. It needs to be very purposeful, doesn't it? And that's that's the whole thing about critical thinking. Yeah, and I would add to this as well, I guess, um, another question, uh, which is when and how do I recover from this work? Because this is this is going to take it out of you, isn't it? Um, mm. So you're going to need some downtime. Yeah, and you're going to need people, you're going to need good, strong social work relationships to do it with. That's the other thing. You know, where am, where are my strong relationships? Who do I critically think with? Like, you know, Jerry, for me, these podcasts are all about critical thinking with you. And it's just been a joy, actually, an absolute joy. And so where are other people finding their chances to actually have safe relationships where they can critically think Um and if, if the answer is nowhere at the moment, go out there and get yourself one, you know, like make make it a priority, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. It's very nurturing. Mm. 